You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Riverview Conversations podcast. My name is Reese, and sitting across from me is Ryan. Hi, Reese. Hi, everybody. Nice to be together again. Yes, it's good. It's a good day. Mm, how are you going? Oh, I'm pretty good. I'm about an eight out of ten. It's very. I good. think. Yeah, I'm very hungry right now. I'm also hungry. Um, look, I'm in a bit of struggle town, race. We've oh, been no. recently doing a bit of diet slash. Uh, it's the Daniel fast. Now, why would you do that? I'm a sucker for punishment. No, not really. Just health <laughs> discipline reasons. Uh, but yes. look, the struggle is real. Been craving some Nando's chicken. Oh wow! And the crave the cravings intensify. Race. They do, especially around about midday, which is the time that we're recording That's this. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Now, here, fun uh, little start off question to get going. Here we go. Emojis, Reese. What's your most used emoji? You reckon? I mean, apart from the thumbs up. <laughs> Yeah, quick reply, uh, thumbs up. Yeah, quick yeah. reply, thumbs up. Uh, it's probably the um, you know, the face of the the dude who's kind of like bearing all his teeth, like half <laughs> frowning, half smiling, doesn't really know what to do. I think yeah. it's called the grimacing face. Yeah. That's one that I use uh, a lot. That's, I I would say, I mean, I very much appreciate the poop emoji. It does mm. get a, a bit of use, yes. but I would have to say I probably would use the the cheeky smirk face. You oh, know yeah, what I'm yeah, yeah. About? The, mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the noise of that, that emoji. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know. Like I, we, I was just looking through the emoji lists before and I feel like I, I see them and I misread what they're supposed to be used for. Yeah. That's, that's fair. Like the praying hands apparently aren't praying. Yeah, that's a high five, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah, and the one where the, the like, as you called it, the, um, the guy on the desk – Tough day at work. Yeah, emoji. the tough, the tough day at work emoji is actually the bowing. There you go. Emoji. We need, you know, we're doing a bit of reframing today. Maybe we do some emojis reframed. Yeah, yeah. Reclaim them for Christ. That's right. There's one for everything <laughs> these days. Hey, uh, obviously, again, we're not going to talk about emojis forever. We are up for a really interesting conversation today. One that um, I think is extremely valuable and has mm. huge implications for us, Reese. In your words, give me a bit of a snap. What are we talking about today? Oh, all the things. No, um, <laughs> what are we talking I think we're talking about a more compelling vision for partnering with God and existing in his creation mm. than what we currently might be mm. sitting with. I certainly feel, having had the, the chat with Rick already, um, I feel like I've almost been resold. <laughs> a vision of what it means but, yeah. to be part of what God is doing. Mm. And that might be like a fairly general way of putting it. But man, my, I feel like I've been drinking from the fire hydrant already. Mm, it's good. It's, uh, if we were to maybe give this uh, episode a little title, we'd probably call it something along the lines of creation as God's temple. Now, uh, what that means is Rick's done a fair bit of work. Our guest Rick um, has done a fair bit of work in trying to reframe Genesis 1 and even parts of Revelation and maybe what we'd call our bookend theology and, and try and understand that in its cultural and historical settings. And um, man, when you understand the perspective, it has radical implications for not only the way we view the world, the cosmos, but the way we view one another, the way we view um, our work and our identity. 
And man, this is this is a really exciting conversation. And so without further ado, I thought we'd introduce you to um, our guest for today. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Uh, Professor Rick Watts is joining with us. Now, he is recently, um, congratulations to him, recently just retired. And in the next couple of months, he's actually going to be moving back to Vancouver from Sydney, Australia. Um, he is Australian by birth, but he does have his Canadian citizenship. And um, he's been really generous to give us some time in the midst of organizing a big move. Um, but man, we know you're going to love this this conversation. So check this out. Rick Watts, thank you so much for joining with us again on the podcast. I think it's about time we considered you a friend of the podcast. Indeed. So nice to have you with us. My great pleasure. Happy to be your friend. Now, uh, Rick, as we do most episodes, we start off with a, just a fun icebreaker question. I thought I would ask, uh, I'm not sure how often you use emojis. What would be your most used emoji on your phone or through email? This is so embarrassing, but it's a colon with an open parenthesis. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah, old, yeah. The classic. Old-style keyboard smiley face. You can't beat it. You can't beat it. Well, I was saying to Reese earlier that my uh, probably most used one would be the poop emoji. So yeah. the smiley face is probably a better alternative. That one that. always gets a rise out of the children. Yes, it Actually, does. to be honest, I have occasionally, I've experimented and it's the one with the dark glasses. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. My, I do like that one. My one tends to be the uh, um, the grimacing face, the man kind of going, <laughs> oh. I'm sure uh. sometimes I get the wrong face. I just, I don't get the discourse, so... <laughs> That's all right. Well, we haven't got you on uh, to talk about emojis, but uh, we've, we're, we're having a, a more thorough conversation. And um, Rick, we're, we're obviously uh, exploring some ideas around probably what we'd call um, bookend theology being both Genesis and obviously somewhat as well Revelation. And um, I think we've, Reese and I have both grown up in traditions that have viewed Genesis um maybe one or two different ways. And there haven't been additional alternatives to kind of actually understand what's happening. And I know you've done a, a fair bit of work exploring Genesis 1 in its cultural and historical setting. And I've been uh, fascinated on some of your your work that you've done there. And uh, in particular, what that means for us as image bearers, for us vocationally as human beings here in uh, God's creation. So I wonder if you could just start off by kind of trying to give us a bit of a framework and a snapshot. When you talk about creation as God's temple, what do you mean by that? Okay, that's great. Uh, can I just say two quick uh, things very quickly if I can? Um, I once took some people to an art gallery and explained different things going on in art. I did art history. And I just want to make it really clear that the artist is the really super bloke not the guy talking about it. So uh, the point to be made here is this is Genesis. It's stunning stuff. And all I'm doing is pointing to what's already there. Okay? That's the first thing. And then secondly, uh, when I studied sociology, uh, one of the things that they helped us understand was everyone starts somewhere. There is no such thing as being a human without being a particular kind of human. 
And just in thinking about what it means to be Christian, this is part of a project of saying, well, okay, so what has the scripture got to say about this? Mm. Just to try and be as upfront about that as I could be. So those two things, that's where this really comes from. Mm. Uh, and so everyone has some kind of basic conception of the world, either in the past a cleverly designed machine, uh, more recently accidental but a finely balanced ecosystem, some people, Mother Nature, maybe not quite so much now, but the Gaia, for example. Yeah. Or for many people, it's just stuff that we can use at will and one day it's going to burn up, right? And uh, you could say that as a Christian or even as a materialist. When the sun gets bigger, at some point it's all over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, more likely, most of us have several of those in our heads and we jump from one to the other. Probably not consciously, but depending how we're feeling, uh, and what we're trying to do uh, will take different views. So, uh, and it matters because how we see the world is going to shape what we do with it. Mm. And certainly, you would know, right? The current conversation around environmental change has really heightened this to us. So, my question was, what do the scriptures have to say about creation? And essentially, they see creation as God's temple. Mm. And you know, so what does that mean? Well, just to get to that, you, everyone's probably familiar with the architectural language the pillars of the earth, the foundations, the windows, all those kinds of things. It's all architectural, which means it's probably not talking about a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, as mean, wonderful as those things might be. (laughs) So the next question is, okay, architecture, what kind of building? And then Isaiah 66, God says, the heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. Next question, where do you find a throne and a footstool? (laughs) You can answer that one in a palace. (laughs) And what do you call the palace of a god? A temple. And in Hebrew, it's the same word. Hey, Carl, hey, Carl. Right? So um, that's basically the biblical view. You're meant to see, you and I are meant to see creation as a temple in which God's presence dwells. We don't have time to talk about it, but you can make a really good case that Israel's tabernacle and the temple that came after it is actually a little model of the universe. That's some other things as well. It's also like a little home in which Israel lives, but that's we can't go there really. So given that, can I say a few things about just some quick implications? And we'll yeah, come yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right, so um, if you know something about Israel's story, what is God's footstool? Well, it's the Ark of the Covenant. And where do you find that? You find it in the tabernacle, but what part of the tabernacle? In the Holy of Holies. Now, just think about that for a moment. Heaven is my throne, yet we get that, but the earth is God's footstool. Think about the implications of that. Where do you find the footstool? Well, actually in the Holy of Holies. So we already know that temples are sacred. Everybody knows that. But the Holy of Holies, my goodness, can you imagine a more profound statement about what the earth is intended to be? It's that inner place where you're meant to have God's full presence. So implication, this might be a little surprising, is that creation is in fact sacred. There's a holiness about it. Now, it's not divine or personal, so you don't worship it, you don't call it Guy, you don't call it the Great Earth Mother or anything like that. It's stuff, but it's not just any old stuff. It's actually God's temple. There is a sacredness. And now we understand why in Revelation 11:18, God says he will destroy those who destroy the earth. And now we know why. It's his temple. You don't mess with temples. Everybody knows that. So a couple of quick things then. Creation is not God. It's not divine. It's not personal. Uh, But at the same time, it's not just raw stuff. It's of immense value because it's the place where God wants to dwell. 
Okay, and interesting things fall out of that. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved not our souls but the cosmos. And now you get why. The whole cosmos is his temple. He's about restoring it. Uh, I would argue Isaiah 6, the best way to translate that is that the fullness of the earth is God's glory. Okay? Uh, creation is good, not perfect. That's a stunning move. And you want to thank God for that every day. In a perfect world, nothing can change and humans have no real value. But actually, God made a world that's open to change. That's what good means. Uh, and it gives incredible room for human agency and creativity. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But it also means, I think, any denigration of matter as some kind of second-class reality, I would suggest is ultimately demonic. Stop thinking of matter. Think of God's creation, all of it, gift and creation. Right? And because it's gift and because it's sacred, it's not to be abused or raped or pillaged. You've got to take care of it. You wouldn't dream of dumping toxic waste in your lounge room. Don't do it in God's temple. And then finally coming out of that, you can see why in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem comes from heaven to earth. We're not going to heaven. Heaven's coming here. This is the place where God's always wanted to be with us. So there's some stuff to go on with right there, isn't there? Yeah, wow. Yeah, my brain's already uh, <laughs> um, spinning at 100 mile an hour. I think it's an interesting distinction for me, like the um, it, it, talking about creation. We, it's almost like growing up, I have an acknowledgement, oh, yeah, like the universe, but uh, a distinct focus in my perception on earth. But what you're saying is creation is so much more than just that. You're talking about ancient cosmology, um, and it's not just, uh, I almost feel like a little bit arrogant to kind of focus so much on the earth's place in the universe as opposed to the whole and my perception of creation. And, you know, here's, you know, the, I'm probably um, anticipating a question you may not be going to ask, but people often confuse size with value. Right? I say, well, the earth is small, how can it be valuable? Well, if you stop and think about that for a moment, what would you prefer, you know? Um, 50 billion cosmic tons of junk or toxic waste or a small diamond. It's, size has nothing to do with it. Value comes from the person who's looking at it. And what God is telling us is in this vast cosmos, which I'm sure Moses couldn't even possibly imagine, the fact is the earth is special because it's the place that God has made for us. However he chose to do that, I'm not a dog in that fight, however he chose to do it, this earth is special because it's designed for him to come and dwell with us. So you talk about, sorry, you talk about um, so creation as God's temple, and we're obviously in that. Yeah. So what does that mean for us? Well, great, right? If you're thinking in terms of ancient grammar, the last thing that goes in a temple is the image of the God. Right. That's what the temple's designed for. So what you get going on in Genesis in an ancient world where people are used to having temples in their cities with images of their gods that are, you know, if you're in uh, Egypt, Horus, you know, falcon god, that kind of mm, thing. Yeah. God says to that entire culture, no, 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 you don't make a temple for me. I made one for you. It's called the creation. And you don't make an image of me. I've made every single human being in my image. And then you follow that through. There's some wonderful things. So Kathy McDowell did some great work on this. In the while she had four kids as well, she did a PhD at Harvard on this topic. Really stunning. 
She said there are three things that go on with the image. First of all, they're formed, often in a garden, often in a sacred garden, they're formed. Then they're animated, and these pagan priests would anoint their eyes so the eyes would open you know, and uh, enable their limbs to move, open their mouth, that kind of thing. Part of that process would then include inviting the fiery breath of Marduk or Ammon Ray to come and indwell the image, at which point the image would become alive and the very presence of the God upon the earth, and then they would enthrone it or install it in a temple. So people know how that works. Well, that's what Genesis is doing. God creates this temple, but the image he places in it are human beings. There's even a sacred garden called Eden. Uh, just you think about that. Which famous person do you know spend a lot of time opening eyes and ears, enabling mouths to speak, and promise to fill people with the fiery breath of the one true God? That's all image restoration. It's tremendous. So every single human being, not just the Egyptians in the Greek world, not just the elites, not just the aristocrats, every single human being was designed to house the presence of God. That's staggering. Now, we could say a bit more about that if you want to, but I should probably stop and let you respond. No, I mean, that's that's amazing. I'm wondering if even before we kind of talk about, because I'm aware with this with that perspective, there's radical implications for the way we view, we view other image bearers, the way we view the, the cosmos, all of that kind of stuff. But maybe before we even um, get there, could you maybe just give us a couple of the... What helped you get to this perspective? I mean, obviously, again, as I mentioned, we grew up in certain traditions that would say, well, well Genesis is like a scientific textbook. Here's what happened. But there's there's something more at play. What is it that kind of made you, um, you know, re-look at this and, and maybe view it from a different uh, perspective? Yeah, so I grew up in a Pentecostal church, you know, and I'm now in my late 60s, so... Um, those churches have changed as do all things. But when I was growing up, um, people did a lot of Bible reading and um, folks knew their scriptures. I grew up with that. And that's partly what inspired me to go do all that work in terms of language learning. And well, some of you learn language, you realize that every language is embedded in a culture. You can't learn language apart from a culture. And uh, all those things that we probably now all take for granted is you've got to hear the New Testament in the first century world. You've got to hear Genesis back in the second millennium, right? That period of two to 1000 BC from in which it was written. And when you do that, you start asking, so what has all that language been in that culture? And that's where this came from was simply, I want to hear what Genesis is talking about. You've got to bring assumptions to the text. Nobody comes to the text without assumption. You can't be human without assumption. I mean, you can't read without knowing language. This, this idea of not bringing assumptions, so everyone's got to bring them, and you have to. The question is, are they the right ones? And so it was really looking at that kind of thing. John Walton's spoken about this, but before him, a whole bunch of others. Um, Meredith Klein was really influential for me. These people are just embedded in that ancient world, they understand its iconography, they know the culture, the grammar of life back then. And when you read Genesis in that light, it just becomes staggering in terms of opening up this worldview. Now, of course, in the ancient world, um, pretty much everyone believed that the creation was the house of the gods. So for Israel to call creation the temple of the God, is that's not surprising. Pretty much everyone believed that. 
But the critical issue is which God? And that's the extraordinary thing, one of the extraordinary things about Genesis. So you have the fact, first of all, that creation is not itself God or divine. That's a staggering move in antiquity. How they got to that, if just as a secular historian, you wanted to ask that question, that in itself is incredible. Right? Because this Yahweh is unlike any other God. But anyway, that's how I got to this, just trying to read these texts in their original setting. Uh, and it's quite amazing, I think, for me. Does uh, that help a little? Is that- yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's almost like finding it in. Like I've often wondered if um, we were talking a little bit just before we got you online about the accessibility of this type of thought or this type of framework because it seems like it's kind of almost like just extra for experts because um, we don't often talk about things in these kind of terms in our gatherings or say small groups or that type of stuff you know it's fairly it's it's fairly heady well maybe not heady stuff but it's it's certainly a step from genesis is either this this is what happened or it's just some lovely kind of flowery metaphor you know, but it's not much more than that, you know. Like you, we don't kind of often take the leap from there to uh, actually what's going on. I'm sorry to interrupt you, beg your pardon, I didn't let you finish, but it, it's extraordinary. So a number of years ago, actually more than a number of years ago, before I first went to Canada, so we're talking about 30 years ago, my goodness, I'm creaking old here. <laughs> uh, I was invited to speak on Genesis to a research group in the city of Melbourne. So these are scientists and only one in that group of about 12 was Christian. And they, this guy invited me to come and speak on Genesis. Now, I'm not quite sure that I knew what he wanted me to say. I think I realised toward the end that I probably hadn't said what he wanted me to say. Uh, what I did was I just tried to put Genesis back in that second millennium BC world, so millennium, 1,000 years, second millennium, the 2,000 years, you know, that period. Uh, and I just pointed out that most of the parallels that I see in Genesis are with Egypt. So a lot of things like light before the sun, you find that in Egypt. Emphasis on separation, you see it in other places, but mostly in Egypt. The four things you start with, the deep, the dark, the formlessness, the breath, that's in Egypt, right? So all these Egyptian connotations. Well, you know, for some of the Christian folks, that's a bit scary. Like, oh, my goodness, are they getting this from Egypt? What does that mean? And I understand that. But there's another way of reading it, and the non-Christian guys got it. As we went through, they realised it wasn't trying to be a scientific account about how things happened. No one thought like that in antiquity. What it's really doing is saying, you guys have lived under a political regime whose God was embodied in Pharaoh, and this is how you got treated. And what happens is all that language that meant something in the Egyptian world gets taken up, and actually the stories know it's Yahweh who did this. And the staggering thing is Yahweh is a God like no other. So it's actually a profound um, statement that gives rise to enormous political implications as to how you treat people. So at the end of this, the non-Christian guys are like, this is incredible. I never imagined. The one guy who gave me some stick was, but what about the seven 24-hour days? And, you know, I've probably really kicked over an ant's nest right there, but even if we can leave that to one side, the implications of this narrative in its culture 
they really are about creating an entirely new society where everyone has value, right? not just the great ones, not just Pharaoh. Mm. Yeah, the notion of um, being an image bearer in in that light is quite incredible. I mean, I think about most of the time I, I come into a church gathering think of, thinking of myself as pretty wretched and broken and, and imperfect and not really capable of many things, but perhaps I should start to view myself and others actually as an image bearer as capable of incredible things for good and incredible change and, you know, able to um, actually partake in what God has for us rather than thinking of myself as like a naughty little boy. And on top of that, right, to be the very thing in which God intended physically physically to dwell. Mm -hmm. That's that, you know, the last step is when they invite the fiery breath of the God. What's going on in Acts chapter 2? That fiery breath of Yahweh now indwelling, and that's open to every human being. You never need to be lonely again. You actually get to be the presence of God to those around you. That's how he intended it from the beginning. So, you know, I do understand some of those traditions that begin, first of all, you know, um, Lord, I'm such a worm and I've sinned and I deserve this and this and this, and I kind of get where that's coming from. And, And, yeah, that seems an awful thing, but that's not where the Genesis story begins. So it starts more with Psalm 8. What are human beings that you're mindful of us? You've crowned us with glory and honour, right? And Sep Jurgen says, you know, a little lower than angels, but the Hebrew Bible actually a little lower than God, which is what the image is. The image is not actually God. Everyone knew the difference between the two, but it was designed to be the place in which his presence would dwell and be encountered, which means... Right, you can't say to people, don't look at me, only look at Jesus. No. <laughs> the reason you're a believer is that Jesus, people get to see Jesus in you. Yeah. When you stick your head over the, you know, the, you're working in the backyard, you stick your head over the fence with all the kind of the weeds and grass in your hair, your neighbour might not realise that they're encountering Jesus. When you go to the supermarket and there's that person, the checkout operator, right, and your first thought when you see them is, this person is made in God's image and you start to treat them like that, right there they're encountering God in us and and not just some faceless God, actually Jesus in us. That's astonishing. It's just remarkable. I'm wondering if we can um, spend some time talking about the implications of that because they are many and varied. Um, Like the, the implications for us viewing creation as God's temple both for our human identity, for our vocation, for, um, yeah, I mean, I'm just even thinking about the way that we view our work. Like often we can view work as just this meaningless task as opposed to an opportunity to image God and create and design. And um, can you kind of run us through maybe some of the, I mean, there's so much there, but just some of the implications. Well, I'm, I'm sure you, you guys can do this for yourselves. I mean, there's no question that we're bright enough. In fact, everyone can. So just think, if all the creation is God's temple, what does it say about those dishes in the sink? They're not just secular bits of stuff, right? These are, this is part of the furniture of God's temple. Washing those dishes well is an act of worship. Dishes need to be washed. Right? I serve by doing that well. You know, it means that nothing we do is trivial. Mowing the lawn. Lawns need mowing. Right? Other places need to be allowed to be wild, but they also need some care. Right? Well, that's what we do. 
It says everything we touch is now to do with, this is all incredible, holy and sacred activity because the whole thing itself is sacred. Now, of course, what those images, just coming back to the image, um, images weren't photographs of the gods. They were more like perhaps a pictograph. They're meant to reflect the character of the god. So the god Horus, Falcon, you know, Swift, can see far, all that kind of thing, right? Well, what we have to ask ourselves is what is it about us, the way we put together, that helps us express God's character in the world? Well, that's what your hands are doing. The seeing, hearing, all of that enables me to facilitate the growth of creation that's flourishing, facilitate creativity. Right? It's All of this gets touched by it, right? And that's the tricky thing to help well, not the tricky thing, it's the great thing. You've got to change your oil on your car, right? We'll see it actually as part of this temple thing. Right? And you've got kids going to school as engineers. I could never work out what turbo fans at 30,000 feet, so that was my training, aeronautical engineer. What did that have to do with knowing Jesus? Well, everything, because those turbo fans were a product of the creativity that God has built into this world. We actually have extraordinary agency. That's what the gospel's unleashed. So, yeah, I can really honour God by creating engines that are far less polluting and last longer. That's a, that's a profound service to the Lord to do that. Mm. Can, I, can I ask a little bit on, on that then, just around um, technologies and advancements? I know it seems as though within a Christian tradition um, there's a lot of a negativity around technologies and actually you know, improving this place. Why is that? Like when, when I think about this perspective, it actually changes the way I think about, man, like if we're inventing this stuff that can actually bring about God's kingdom and love and like, why, why is there so much maybe negativity around um, that yeah. kind of advancement? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it, it reflects the fact that creation is good and not perfect. So Ecclesiastes talks about this too. One of the illustrations that this is a guy who invents an axe. Look at this thing, like God, he says, it's called an axe. Wow, I've never seen one of those before. It's amazing. Yes, I know, right? And got this wooden handle and, and on the top, I've got this metal thing that's sharp. And look at me, I can chop down this tree. And he's doing that. And what does he get? He gets a splinter in his eye. Ecclesiastes knows that, right? It's the guy who says, I've invented something, it's called a shovel. Look at this hole I can dig, and then he falls in it, right? (laughs) And it's just recognising in the world that God's created, everything that we make, every new thing we do has implications because they change the world, right? There wasn't a hole there. There is now, and if I don't pay attention, I'll fall into it. I've got these incredible engines that are very powerful, but what I do with those things is critical. So I would say two things here. Modernity is entirely the product of the gospel and really big ideas like change is possible. Genuine change is possible. No one believed that in antiquity. Every human being has value. Cities are meant to be dynamic, all that kind of stuff, right? It's just the modern world is built on those assumptions. You can't live in modern China without a fundamentally Christian worldview. It's just, it's just the truth, right? We haven't talked about sin or any of that kind of stuff, but just the huge fundamentals of modernity. Why are we in such a mess? Well, because if you're a designer, your character comes enormously into play. Every design choice reflects our character. 
You can walk into a church and from the way that building's designed, you can read the character of that institution off what you see in front of you. Oh, wow. Look at the structure. What does it facilitate? Fellowship? Does it facilitate awe and wonder? Is it merely functional? Does it say to people you're just ministry minions or something? What, what does that structure actually say about what's going on in those buildings, right? Um, they're reflections of our character. And I think that's the absolutely critical thing. The reason why people are nervous about technology is because the character that's designed and used it hasn't always been in line with God's character. So iPhones are fantastic as long as when you're sitting at a table, that doesn't dominate the other image bearers sitting around the table. Spend all your time looking at that technology and to ignore the one thing that's actually designed to hold the presence, and that's not the phone. Now you're using technology in a way that denies the narrative that gave rise to it. So put your jolly iPhone away and be eye to eye with the only thing in the room that actually was designed to embody God's presence. I suppose the same thing applies to things like art as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 right. So this amazing creativity, and it's wide open. Every time you design something new, it opens up new questions. I mean, the iPhone, to pick up that you know, illustration again, it was disruptive. But once you've got one, now you've got a different landscape. So the design questions are constantly moving forward as we design and change the landscape. So it's never going to end, right? There's always, okay, what do we do now? Where do we go from here? What kinds of issues are we dealing with? And behind all of that should be, I think, you have to honour creation as God's temple. That should never be lost. And remember, the pinnacle of that creation is every human being is made in God's image. So this thing that I'm designing, what are the outcomes in terms of those two basic parameters? Mm. Yeah, well, uh, I have a kind of, a random thought uh, just around like materiality in general, again, in a Christian tradition. Um, I mean, I grew up maybe in a, in a church that it, sometimes it seemed like things like food, um, you know, other material realities were not necessarily to be enjoyed or, whereas again, in this perspective, it's, it's actually redeeming, um, place and body and, and food and, Things along those lines. Could you just speak into that a little bit? Well, I, I, how are you? I'm not sure about the language, but the fact that there's stuff to use the word uh, is miraculous. The fact that there's something and not nothing is incredible. And I think you know, scripture, if you like, is the arch materialism. It doesn't play that off against spirituality. It holds them both together. It wraps up both. It's like opening your spiritual Photoshop and pushing all the color levers up, right? Uh, it, it doesn't play one off against the other. And I think, you know, it's, it's Hellenism that tends to do that, right? They're the ones that tend to go for the disembodied soul. You know, you get Christians talk all about the incarnation and then they think it's all great, but what are they anticipating? Being a disembodied soul somewhere. What went wrong there? How does that happen? The resurrection is not a disembodied something. It's a fully embodied Jesus who can actually eat and it doesn't go through his sandals. Right? A wonderful picture of the marriage supper, Isaiah 25, the choicest of wines and the best of meats, right? The great. There's an incredible physicality about the gospel. And I, and I think it gets lost and that's more a Hellenistic thing. You know, that's where the gospel takes off and 
Now that that's a whole other conversation. Perhaps we have a podcast on that. But um, no, I'll just I'll say I think theology created all kinds of problems for us. And by that, I don't mean thinking carefully about what God has to say. Theology is not a Christian invention. It's a platonic one. And there are all kinds of things behind that that get into it and, and cause some trouble. But let me just come back to physicality. Um, you can't be an image in the ancient world without being three-dimensional. It has to be present to the senses. Right? So to say, only in my mind I image God, that's Hellenism speaking. That's not the scriptures. That's why Jesus heals bodies. That's why you're going to be resurrected. Profoundly physical. And I'd say, too, just to add to this, one of the outcomes is that everyone knew in the ancient world, if you attacked an image, you attacked the God that the image embodied. It was an act of high treason. Think about this. Every act of abuse against another human being is an act of high treason against Yahweh. And now you understand why for Jesus, the two great commandments are you love God with all your heart, mind, strength and soul, and you love your neighbour as yourself. Where does that come from? Because every human being is maybe the image of that God that we meant to love with our heart, mind, strength, and soul. Now, all I say, just what you can just try, so listeners can try this. So just for the next week after you've heard this, give this a shot. Don't beat yourself up because you don't always get it right. But just try to put yourself in the frame of mind where the world around you is actually God's temple and it's a sacred and it's a holy place. Of course, you can use it. Trees are there, right? There's all this stuff is provisioned for us, but we don't rape and pillage. Right? And every other human being you meet. Right? So usually that happens, you know, think about face-to-face. I mentioned the cash register operator. Right? Just try that. When you see them or the person that you buy your fast food from, you walk into that place, the first thought that hits you is this person is made in God's image and designed to house his presence. And see, just see how that changes your life. And I promise you it will. I promise you it will turn your life upside down if you just take those two very simple ideas and take some baby steps toward trying to live them out. I wonder if... Yes, go I ahead. I wonder Sorry. if what you're... We've, we've talked a bit about kind of reframing Genesis and and actually kind of being image bearers and inhabiting creation and being a part of the temple... Um, that seems to me to be a little little bit different than sometimes I slip into the bit of a bit of a trap of thinking that this what's happening here and now is only temporary, and what's really going to happen is when I get to heaven, <laughs> that's where the good stuff is, you know, like and kind of almost like treat the here and the now and the embodied reality as a little bit of something to be kind of endured and to be kind of got through until the celestial kingdom, but. It, Maybe maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree with that kind of a thought. Um, no, no, I think it, it has traction because it is actually addressing a reality. You know, Paul's aware of that. You know, our, our bodies they corrupt. That's just what they do, right? And you know why that happens and where that all came from—that's a whole other conversation. But he knows that. I mean, my goodness, I had to look at the other day of some photographs when I was studying at. Um, you know, in England, and I look at myself now and I go, yep, okay, I can see that. There's corruption sitting in, right? <laughs> I die daily. Oh, yeah, right? So I get that, and I get that the world is broken. Right? Things happen in the world that are not great. So, and, you know, we're all longing to know God's presence, and for many people, the way we say that in shorthand is heaven. So I want to affirm some of those 
responses because they're addressing realities. I'd also like to reframe those responses to say, yeah, but you know what? One day, this body's going to put on immortality. This, which is corruptible, is going to put on incorruption. So this is not going to get junked. I'm not going to come back looking like Elle McPherson or somebody like that. Sorry, that's <laughs> betraying my age, right? And you can fill in your own, right? You're going to come back as you, but it's going to be a body that's actually been clothed now in incorruptibility. And I think it's because of the presence of God just totally right, filling all this place, which he really can't do in that full sense because it would mean, I think, judgment. And then the other thing I had is, um, yeah, I mean, you want heaven to come, and heaven is the presence, and it's going to come here on earth. So if you've had good coffee now, you think it's great, wait until you have coffee that comes from beings that have been totally just um, swamped with the presence of God, that have grown up in an environment utterly pervaded with the unmediated living presence of the Holy Spirit. You want to have Wait, you're going to have good coffee then. <laughs> I often have this like random thought that like, you know, when you go to Subway and you get yourself a sub, you know when it's been made with love and when it hasn't. I wonder what <laughs> Subway is going to be like. Uh, I, I, all of this is really helpful and it's actually making me think as well, just in light of um, obviously even how the Gospels portray Jesus and the life of Jesus in some aspects as the perfect image of God. And Jesus says it as of himself, you know, look to the father, you see, uh, look to me and you see the father. And in some ways he is living out both his identity as an image bearer, but he's also interacting with others and almost providing an example for us as to what that ought to look like. Um, and, and that's kind of reframing, like so many things in my head are bouncing around, even around him being crucified, um, that which we do to the image is that which we kind of do to God. And that's why the significance of the resurrection is so powerful. I mean, so much is, yeah. And this is absolutely true. But the incredible thing about Jesus, um, and I, uh, forgive me for this kind of self-reference, but I, I gave a, a Regent summer school lecture just this summer past via Zoom. And it was rather uh, provocatively entitled Reframing the Trinity, subtitle Giving Jesus His Due. And the point I wanted to make was, um, what do you do with the, the, the orthodox Trinitarian state of one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, which is all true, when it omits the one word that most clearly defines or identifies Jesus with Yahweh, namely Lord? How come there's no Lord in the Trinitarian statement? Because Lord's the biggie. And what I'm saying there is Jesus is Lord before his Son, and it's just picking up on what's going on on the cross, first of all, is Yahweh himself taking all that junk into himself. Yes, it's true God sent his son, but Jesus himself says, when people are talking about son, hang on a minute, he says, it's his last great question. He asked them all at the end of his life in Jerusalem. He's dealt with all of his people who've come on with their questions, you know, and answered brilliantly. No one dares ask him a question. He says, now I have one for you. Just think what he could have asked. But he asks about the Messiah. He says, why do people say the Messiah is David's son when David himself calls him Lord? There's a bit more going on there. But what Jesus is telling us is, if you're going to think Messiah, don't start with son, start with Lord. That's why if you're going to have one God, Lord has got to be in there. 
Because when he's on the cross, he's first of all Yahweh on the cross. But that didn't surprise you. You saw that back in the Exodus when they don't have water and Yahweh stands on the rock and says, whack me and see what happens. And he bleeds living water for his people. Right, so he's telling Jesus, not just showing us what we should be like, he's telling us, first of all, what Yahweh's like. He's a God who says, whack me, and I will bleed living water for you. And this is the kind of character we're reflecting. And so what you see in the cross is exactly that. John gets it. He talks about blood and water flowing from Jesus' side. He gets what's going on. This is the smitten Yahweh on the rock. Right, so those two things are happening there, right? And it's... Wow, this is what Yahweh's like. <laughs> He'll bleed living water for crooks like us, right? <laughs> Come to me and I'll, you know. And then he says, this is what we should be like as well. We pour out our lives for others, right? And that's what we're learning to do. Awesome. So Christian communities are meant to be little islands that are kind of attempts at modelling this and leaning forward into the new creation. We're not there yet. We know that. But we're flags pointing to a world that's coming. Not that we're leaving this place, but right there in those communities when we gather together, there's an anticipation of the world to come. It's present in a little form, but it's going to grow to be something enormous. Right? And people can experience that when we gather together or when they meet with you over coffee. Out of your belly flows that living water, right? the living water of the world to come. It's staggering. <laughs> I feel. I feel like though that's that's such an exciting gospel proclamation. You know, like the the fact that we are invited to participate with God in redeeming and restoring all of creation, in bringing about uh, creative solutions, in in almost modeling God as He creates from nothing, doing the same thing ourselves. And I I sometimes think to my like. I, on my desk, we got given at our church uh, a, a little gospel tract in <laughs> hyphen mark, which was about the beast, you know, about the antichrist. And, and and part of me wonders, man, like if I think about uh, the good news of Jesus and, and the context that we find ourselves in, man, that's that's an exciting gospel proclamation. The Why, why is it that maybe we've veered on the other side of um, – you know, if if you were to die today on your way home from wherever you're going, do you know Jesus? Like, I, I don't know. Like, how does that translate? Well, like I think like most of these things, people wouldn't believe it was complete rubbish, right? And, and it's not. I mean, Jesus says no one comes to the Father but by me. That's an extraordinary claim to something like who you think you are. And, and, Rabbis will be critical of Jesus. They say, hang on, every good rabbi points to Torah. You point to yourself. What's going on here, right? There are extraordinary claims about who Jesus is. And, you know, I would say it's not, you, you don't go to heaven because you're good. You want to use that language. It's not about goodness. It's about relationship, right? Goodness can't deal with death. It just can't. Something else has to deal with death, right? A friend of mine made that point, right? He's, he's talking to some guy, and the guy said, well, I don't think the Christian thing's going to make me much better. You know, I'm a pretty good person as I am. And the guy said, yeah, but goodness is not the issue, mate. The issue is death. There's lots of good people still down there. Goodness is not going to help you deal with death. It's Jesus that can do that because he is, in fact, Yahweh among us who gives us life. So I get that, right? But the other side of it, you know, um, it ends up if you're not careful and we've got this long kind of medieval history where you scare the pants off people to get them into heaven, right? 
and, and I want to say, yeah, there is that. I mean, if you don't know God, I would argue you will pass out of existence. You'll be destroyed at the end. Right? And you can talk about that another time if you want. Right? So there are serious consequences from saying no to life. Right? Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, read John's Gospel. And what does Jesus talk about most of all? I'm offering you life. So, again, self-reference. But when I teach this stuff in churches and... Uh, it's actually called It's About Life. And I'm trying to reframe what we mean by holiness and the whole Christian project. Uh, this is, it starts with life. And I'd say out of that, but I think, you know, being a, a true, being a, a made in God's image and filled with the spirit, I, I think the, the surest sign of holiness is when people feel more alive after they've been with us than they were before. Isn't that great to give up being the moral policeman of the universe and be someone who offers life? And it doesn't mean you can't talk about stuff. You can. But the goal is to bring life. So we're re-scripting that language in this is the offer. Eternal life is what's on offer. You, do you want it? Do you like coffee? Why don't you have coffee in the world to come? You like whiskey? You had had nothing yet, mate, right? You know, <laughs> this is what's on offer. And all you have to do is give up being autonomous and just enter into a trusting relationship with God. What's not to like about that? Yeah, it's a lot more compelling to talk about things in that way than to talk about you're going to hell and you're terrible. You need to be, you know, that's not exactly a good sales pitch or. <laughs> It's not helpful, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's not the primary biblical place. The Bible starts in Genesis 1. Right? And it's the same with Jesus, right? You know, it's, he's offering people life. Look at him. Right? Now, he's got some tough things to say to people. You know, you treat people like dirt and he's going to be on your case. But that's actually good news for a lot of people, isn't it? If you're a worker, it's nice to know that God's going to say to your boss, you better treat these guys well. Right? It's yeah. nice for some women at home to know that their husband needs to learn that they're meant to love their wife like Christ loved the church. There's a lot of families that would love to hear that, right? Mm. Okay? A lot of kids in homes would love to have a dad who comes home and wants to bring life like Jesus did. That's good news for a lot of people. It's bad news for the people who think, I don't want to be accountable to anyone. Oh, yeah, well, we're going to get your comeuppance. You will get slapped around, seriously, if you want to do that. But for most people, it's really good news. <laughs> I suppose that's also truth that's kind of echoed throughout um, history, really. Kind of, you think of, um, uh, I suppose, in, in Roman times, you know, if you just abuse people and, and uh, treat people like dirt and expendable, you, you know, they got their comeuppance, didn't they? <laughs> you know, and God doesn't want that to happen. That's not his intention. He wants everyone to have this. But a couple of little quick things that do come out of this, right? So... Um, in the ancient world, they had huge problems with change. Right? That's, just, um, that's, again, another talk. But for the Bible, that's the gift. Right? So one of the, the frequent critiques of anti-Christian apologists was that Christians made people too important and then the wrong kind of people. That's because the Christians live in a world where things can change. Paul is the first guy to use transformation of people. What? How can that happen? That's what the Christians are offering. And they did. They changed the world. Look how the modern world differs from antiquity. That's the gospel that did that, right? Now, because the world is so full of change, I think that's why Paul writes letters and not abstract treatises. 
Paul doesn't write books on doctrine of the church. Why? Because reality is not like that. Reality consists of a changeful world with all these different communities of different people in different places and at different stages in their development. He writes letters because that's really the only way you can address this. We're not dealing with standard, abstract, universal concept church. It's not the world God made. And writing letters, I think, is just a brilliant statement about the nature of reality. And he addresses every church where it is, you know, and helping it transform into something else. So people say, oh, what's the model of the church in the New Testament? There isn't a model. It's a community of people learning to look like God in their particular situation. That's going to be different in every single place. It's absolutely stunning. And it says to communities, you know, that little church in, you know, Subiaco, Western Australia, or something like that. guys, be God's people where you are. Don't try to be a big church in Sydney. That's not where God has put you. And that's not any condemnation on the big church in Sydney. Not at all, right? But you're not in Sydney and you're not a big community. You're a little one. So work out what it means to be God's people like that where you are. Right? And, and just embrace that. Right? It's wonderful. And, uh, you know, I sometimes have said to some leaders in the movement of which I'm a part, it's great to have all these speakers come who have churches of, you know, 10,000, 15,000 people. But what about the 95% of pastors who've got 120 people in the congregations? Who's helping them to be that community? And, of course, underlying that is a certain vision of success. But what if you need to rethink that model of success? So what I love about this is the emphasis on particularity. The only thing we have in common in one sense is we're all meant to look like Jesus, who himself is showing us what God's like. But what that looks like you know, in Nigeria, Laos or something, right, is going to be different on the ground from what it looks like in Vietnam or some other place. And it's just helping people to own that and not to feel they have to be something else, but to say, here's where we are. There are people next door. How do we be bearers of the life of God to those people in that setting? It's great. It's very empowering on its side. It's... Incredible. <laughs> mm, I feel like this is this conversation has been extremely, extremely valuable, and I I know there's going to be a lot of room for for additional thought and unpacking and discovering the implications. I'm actually wondering, Rick, if could you actually just pray for us and for our listeners? Um, I I think you know, in the words of Jesus, he invites us to life, but life to the full and life abundantly, and. I feel like sometimes we need help to discover that fully. And so we'd love for you to pray. Love to. Father, we do thank you for this extraordinary love you have for your creation. That text we all know, for in this way, Yahweh has loved the world in that he came in Jesus. And uh, Lord, I just ask that you teach us these things through the power of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of one another. Help us, I pray, just to embrace this gracious gift of freedom and love and service, the joy of not having to put ourselves at the centre, the joy of being able to just focus on someone else and how can I bring life to you today? And the great thing about this is, Lord, that these kinds of
to prayers are ones that you just love to answer and quickly. So we command ourselves in your good keeping, fill us with your spirit, transform us, we pray, into the image of your dear son, whom you love, that we might know that great freedom and the sure and certain hope of the life of the world to come. We ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but my brain is going all kinds of places right now. That was certainly a time. It's awesome, eh? That chat with Rick. Um, I reckon we've got some homework to do. I reckon this week it, it would be yeah. good for us to go out and uh, treat that checkout operator like an image bearer of God. And, and mm. man, I'm, I'm inspired by that notion. Um, mm. And if, if, if there's some things that came up that Rick was talking about today that have just blown your mind or maybe you have further questions, just keep digging. Just dive into it. Yeah. Don't, don't let it freak yeah. you out. Don't let it... Um, just go at it. Like... Um, Follow your inkling and maybe just read Genesis again. Maybe that's a good start. Yeah. Hey, and if you've got uh, other questions or, or things you want to share with us, thoughts, extra ideas, be sure to email us at podcast at riverviewchurch.com.au. And of course, as we always mention, man, we would love for you to share this podcast, yes. uh, to review us. It actually really helps out with all the algorithmy things. Mm. So give us a five-star rating. Leave a comment, um, maybe how this has been helpful for you. And of course, uh, if you need any more information about our church, um, you can find us online on any of the platforms at at Riverview Online. Uh, on there, you can find service times and all things like that. Yes, you can. And our original music today, as always, is from our good friend, Andrew Warren. And as we always mention, that's all from us. Keep having conversations. Give God a rain dance right now!